let's get started. Open a word of prayer. Oh, hold on. Am I recording? I'm recording. All right. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for um, teaching us, for this church, for each other, God. And I, I pray that today as you, as we look at the life of William Cooper, that you would encourage us through it and um, uh, just show us that even really, really messed up people can be used by you, God. And so we ask these things. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So today we're going through the life of William Cooper. So the reason why I, I decided to do his life is um, a few weeks back we did... Um, I did a, a lesson on depression, and then I mentioned William Cooper, and uh, I thought his, his life is so interesting, so I thought it'd, it'd be pretty cool to uh, just look at what his life is like, what played into his life, so um, I am going to, we, we've got two sides of the page, on the back is, uh, are, some of his, are some of his writings, so William Cooper, he was a uh, poet, and he was a hymn writer, and that's how we know him as a church, but um, he, he also had, there's a lot more to his life than just writing. So let's uh, turn to the back of the page, and then I'm going to read to you one of his, one of his uh, writings. All right, so try not to look at the other, other uh, poems on this page. So this was written in 1773. This is when he was about 40-some years old. Um, and it goes like this. Lines written during a period of insanity. Hatred and vengeance, my eternal portion. Scarce can endure delay of execution. Wait with impatient readiness to seize my soul in a moment. Damned below Judas, more bored than he was, who for few pence sold his holy master. Twice betrayed Jesus me, the last delinquent, deems the profanest. So listen to how like how much self-loathing and hatred he has for himself here. Man disavows and deity disowns me. Hell might afford my miseries a shelter. Therefore hell keeps her ever hungry mouths all bolted against me. Hell is against this guy. Hard lots encompassed with a thousand dangers. Weary, faint, trembling with a thousand terrors. I'm called and vanquished to receive a sentence worse than Abram's. And Abram in the Old Testament, this was a guy that rebelled against uh, Moses. And then the earth swallowed him up. The earth opened beneath his feet, swallowed this guy up, closed up around him. And Willem Cooper, he's saying he, his, his life is worse than this guy's. Him, the vindictive rod of angry justice, sent quick and howling to the center headlong. I fed with judgment in a... In a fleshly tomb and buried above ground. And that's the end of the poem. Do you guys like hear like how heavy this is? This guy hates his life. This guy is in the pits of hell. He says that his whole life, even though he's alive, he's really dead. He says, I'm in a, my, my, my body is a fleshly tomb and I'm just buried above ground. And this is how he felt. Um... Where do we hear this sort of stuff in the church? Where do we hear this in, in the lives of our, our fellow believers? Um, they may feel it, but I don't know if they've expressed it to this extent. So William Cooper was a really, really messed up guy. So let me start off with that. So let's go through his life. Have you guys heard of William Cooper, by the way? So I, uh, I heard of him through uh, primarily through uh, John Piper. He has this book called... Um, the Hidden Smile of God, and then 
I've also uh, read some biographies on him, or like short biographies. If you go online, just type it in. Um, I think the full biography of him is uh, free on the Google Books site. So just type in William Cooper in Google Books. So um, let's go through through his life. And as we go through his life, I just want us to see like what played into his life and like maybe how how it how it affected him, um, and ultimately how he found hope in the gospel even when he was in the pits of despair. So he was born in 1731 in London, uh, in London, and or, around London, not right in London, but around London. Um, so he had a pretty like uh, boring childhood. When he was six years old, 1737, his mother died, and his father um, he he sent him he sent William Cooper off to boarding school, um, and he says that it was around this time that something happened, and he writes about. He he's very like vague in how he writes about his time in boarding school. But he, t- he talks about a bully that comes and does something to him. He doesn't say what this bully does. All he says is that he he felt completely dehumanized and he he wouldn't look up at this bully. All he would look at was the his shoes. And back in this time, like no one talked about sexual abuse. But then, if you read into what he writes, and uh, some biographers have said um, that it's it's if you just read into it. Um, it's very likely that he was sexually abused when he was six, eight years old. So that may have played into um, his psyche later on. So um, he, uh, when he, when he was in a, became, when he was a teenager, he went to another school, and he says that these were some of the happiest moments of his life. And um, I guess it was free from any type of bullying or abuse or uh, mental anguish. So. 1749 through uh, 1756, he uh, sort of fell in love with his cousin, and uh, he was like madly in love with her. And then he was going to um, marry her, but uh, for some unknown reason, uh, this is what what John Piper says: for some unknown reason, her father did not allow it. And I'm guessing <laughs> the reason might be because it was his cousin. I don't know. I don't know how how common marrying your cousin was back in the day, but. Um, so, his cousin, her name was uh, El- her name was um, Elizabeth, I believe. Uh, he he actually like always he had her in his mind like through the rest of his life, and and uh, after the the uh, potential marriage was broken up, um, he never saw her again. But he uh, he wrote as as a poet, he wrote um, poems about her, so he was always on her mind. So. Um, in 1752, uh, during this time when he was in love with his cousin, he entered his first period of major period of paralyzing depression. So this was before uh, before he became a Christian, and um, this is this is we're not sure exactly what set it off, but then he just fell into it. And if you guys know, have any experience with depression or you know anyone that has suffered from depression, you may know that it just might take a little thing that will that will push you into this state. So. Um, this depression lasted uh, for a few months. Um, it was, and he, we have a quote from him here. It says, "Day and night, I was upon the rack, lying down in horror, and rising up in despair." Can you imagine, like, just going to bed every single night and hating every single aspect of your life? And imagine the the sleeplessness, the 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 torture that you felt as you went into bed, and when you woke up. It wasn't as if your soul woke up with the sun. You still felt like death when you woke up. And this was his life every single day. 
So um, in 1759, uh, he was appointed as a commissioner of bankrupts. So this was in the in the London like governmental system. This was one of the offices, and what and when he entered into the um, entered into this, he was brought to. Um, Normally, normally he would have been able to, if he was skilled enough and if he went through the n- normal interview process, he would have gotten the position. But then because William Cooper's father had some enemies in Parliament, they decided, we're going to make his son pay. So they made the process really, really tough for him. So because of that, he, uh, he, hated, he, um, he decided not to go. And then this, this also put him in a sp- state of just depression he he hated what he was going through and um 1763 i think this is this period ties into this time where he was um working for the government um it was through this kind of like persecution of his father's political enemies that this pushed him into his second major depression and um and this is uh he says here he was as a man what every, or actually, every time he went to work, he was as a man when he arrived at the place of execution. So every day he felt people just pressing down on him, um, slandering him, and making life just miserable in general. And this is uh, when he first attempted suicide. So at first, he tried to swallow poison pills. For some reason, he couldn't, he couldn't swallow them. And he tried to hang himself. And for some reason, he couldn't hang himself. I think in this period, like within the span of like a few weeks, he tried to commit suicide three times, and he failed. And he even that made that made him even more depressed because he can't even succeed at killing himself. So, uh, in 1763, he was committed to an asylum around the area. It was called Saint Albans Insane Asylum. And this is this is when it was really obvious to everyone around him that there was something wrong with him. Something wasn't clicking with him. And uh, we'll see as uh, as he spent time here. We'll see that um, this act, this time in the asylum actually did him a lot of good. So uh, our next point here, seventeen sixty three, his conversion. So um, let me read to you actually before he became before he became uh, a Christian. This is when he was in the in the asylum. He um, he, there was something that triggered a, an episode where he felt an intense conviction of sin, and that something was um, his failure at trying to kill himself. So at that point, he knew that there was something wrong, and he felt so guilty about it. And this is what he says: um, he came under the conviction of sin at this point. Um, so he, so this is what he says. Conviction of sin took place, especially of that, of that just committed, which is his attempted suicide. The meanness of it, as well as its atrocity, were exhibited to me in colors so inconceivably strong that I despised myself with a contempt not to be imagined or expressed. So he hated himself so much at this point. This sense of it secured me from the rep- repetition of a crime which I could not now reflect on without abhorrence. Before I rose from bread, it was suggested to me that there was nothing wanted but murder to fill up the measures of my iniquities, and that, though I had failed in my design, yet I had all the guilt of that crime to answer for. So he's saying that um, he committed this wrong, and even though he didn't succeed in it, he had to answer for this sin of trying to, com- to of the sin of trying to kill himself. A sense of God's wrath and a deep despair of escaping it instantly succeeded. 
The fear of death became much more prevalent in me than ever the desire it had been. So he had already wanted death. And after he felt this guilt and after he felt this conviction of sin for, for trying to kill himself, he wanted, he wanted to die even more. So this is what happened. And uh, he, he says that um, how he felt during this time period was it was as if his body was, was reeling and he was staggering around like a drunken man. So um, during this time in, in the asylum, he, by chance, he, around six months into his time there, he stumbled upon a Bible. And it wasn't by coincidence. It was by divine design, as we'll see later in his life. So he, he opened the Bible, he read the book of John, and then he talks about finding, um, re reading, stumbling upon the uh, 11th chapter of John where Lazarus is raised from the dead. And he, he read about Jesus. And then this is what, I have this quote here um, in the middle of the page. He says that in Jesus, he saw so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men. This is what he was in our Savior's conduct that it almost shed tears. And this is where things started to change for William Cooper. He saw, okay, there's not merely a God who's angry at me. There's not merely wrath for me. But there's this person, Jesus, who he came across in the scriptures. And he saw, here is a good man. Here's someone who's full of mercy and grace and compassion. So with that, he continued to read the Bible. And if you guys have your Bibles um, or on your phones or whatever, I'm just going to read from <clears throat> Romans 3.25. And this is the verse that, that converted William Cooper. And actually, uh, this is uh, pretty good timing. Michael is actually going to speak on this next week in his sermon. Uh, this is what it says, um, talking about Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. This concept of propitiation is, is, is what changed William Cooper. He saw that he didn't have to answer for his crimes because someone else paid the price for his sins. And this is when he... Um, became a Christian, and uh, there was a doctor in the in the insane asylum. His name was um, Doctor Cotton, and this was a guy that mentored him during his time in, in the asylum. And he loved his time in the insane the asylum so much. He saw that it was so beneficial to him that he even after they decided that he was okay and, and that he, it was okay <clears throat> for him to be let go, he decided to stay another twelve months because he just. With, benefited from from his time there so much especially with his from his relationship with this doctor so can you imagine if you were like put into an insane asylum like why would you want to stay there like a day longer but William Cooper he decided this was good for me God had blessed me with my time in the insane asylum so he recognized the mercy of God during that time so um after that he moved in with a family called the Unwin family so it was Four people. It was a uh, uh, mother, father, two children, and uh, they took him in. They saw that maybe he he could use our help, and um, things were going. He, he benefited from just a normal relationship with these people, and um, during this time, it wasn't as if everything got better. Uh, he 
pretty much did nothing. Like he would just stay home all day and stare out in through the window. He would just think. Um, he didn't really do anything really productive. So there's not much that goes on between his time out of the asylum and his time with the Unwin family. Um, but two years after he moved in with the Unwins, uh, the father of the family, Morley, uh, he dies. And, um, and this, this set the stage for a kind of a strange relationship with the, the mother of the family. So for the rest of his life, or for the rest of her life, um, they had this very like close relationship. Um, as far as we can tell, it wasn't like a romantic relationship, but then they were just really, really close, and and uh, it, it it and she would read into his poems. Um, you know, he was just if you've ever read like poems, they they can be open to interpretation. And she read some of his poems, and she thought, oh, maybe there's maybe he feels something for me. But they never established any type of romantic relationship. As far as we know, he never felt anything for her other than the fact that this was someone that he could rely on. This was someone stable in his life. So he appreciated that. Um, and two years later, um, yeah, so after after uh, the father dies, this is when this relationship with her um, continued on. Um, so, um, and then this is... So that there, one guy died, but then another guy entered his life, and this set the stage for the most important time of his life besides his conversion. And this was um, his friendship with the guy John Newton. Are you guys familiar with him at all? That, that song, "Amazing Grace," um, and he. This was a guy that understood the gospel. He understood it in his in his bones because he felt. He was a slave trader, John Newton was, and he was the one that did violence to slaves. This was a guy that treated other human beings like dirt, and he understood the wretchedness of his sin. This is why he writes in his song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. John Newton understood the mercy of God, and this played into how he treated William Cooper. So um, he over... This set the stage for the course of uh, the rest of his life where John Newton was a friend and a counselor and a pastor to William Cooper. And and John Newton, he saw that, okay, here's a guy that doesn't do anything. Um, uh, he, here's a guy that doesn't do anything, um, but he recognizes that he has this artistic sense to him. He recognizes that he has these poetical gifts to him. He has a way with words and lyrics. So he decides... You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to get together with with uh, William Cooper and together we're going to create a hymn book. So uh, they created a hymn book for John Newton's church, and in this hymn book were um, the most some of the most famous hymns in history. Amazing Grace first appeared in this hymn book. It was called um, Olney Hymns. The church that they served at was, or the church that um, John Newton served at was uh, at a place called Olney, and um, this 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 included 200 of John Newton's um, hymns and 68 uh, of William Cooper's hymns. And um, we'll, we'll read in the back. Actually, let's turn here. Um, 1769, this is when this work was started. And uh, there are two really um, famous songs that are actually three, um, and I have them all here, but not in their entirety. But... Um, let's read through them, and as we read them, just listen to the the 
uh, poeticism of, of these, of the lines and how they speak of the gospel. So I'm going to read, There is a fountain filled with blood. And this was written in 1779 by William Cooper. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Notice how he brings himself into the picture. He says that I'm as vile as a thief that died next to Jesus. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God are saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor lisping stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. So I want to point out that the last two lines of this hymn. Like, and first off, like, what do you guys think of this hymn? Like, did anything like strike you from it? Like, do you, do you think it's like kind of beautiful? In the words. Like he just, like if you guys have ever tried writing poetry, like I used, I, I used to try to write poetry in like high school and college, and uh, it wasn't good and it's hard. But notice the economy of words with that with which William Cooper writes. It's so succinct, but he says so much in it. And these last two lines, I think, are speak so much to the life of William Cooper. He probably didn't know how much these words would mean in his own life, but the second to last verse, the fourth verse. Um, ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wound supply he's thinking back on his time in the insane asylum redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die he's saying that till the end of my life I'm always going to sing of the love of God but as we'll see later on he died not believing that he died thinking that he that God would send him to hell but he says, when this, when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. He's saying that after my body is put in the ground and I'm dead and gone, there in the presence of God, I'm going to sing of God's saving power. It's, it's really interesting if you put this against the contrast of his life. It's really like, it's... God, I think God gave William Cooper this song to say, you know what, you may have forgotten me, but I'm not forgetting you. And I believe that William Cooper, he did stand in the presence of God, singing of the saving power of God. So that's uh, one of the hymns. We'll read another one of his hymns later. Um, questions or comments at this point? All right. So... Um, I'm sorry. the the, uh, the work was began in 1769, and it, the the work the um, it wasn't published until ten years later in 1779. So, this was a long project. Um, so in 1773, this was actually before he got um, 
before William Cooper wrote uh, the hymn that we just read, he had something called the fatal dream. And we don't know exactly what happened in this dream. But William Cooper, he wrote about it 12 years later, and he said, um, he, he reminisced about it, and it, what was said in this dream to William Cooper, we're not totally sure, but this is, he wrote that it went something along the lines of this. I have this in quotes. It is all over with you. You are lost. And this plunged him into another deep depression. Um, and he, it was so horrible, he never spoke with it for anyone for 12 years. Um, all he knew was that something terrible, he saw something terrible, and his soul was tortured. Um, but he was still able to do the work, um, probably through the friendship of John Newton, because um, John Newton was a friend to him even in his darkest hour um, that he was able to finish this work. So 1779, the Only Hymns book was published. Um, and then after this, um, we see that there was, in William Cooper's life, this sort of um, was it for him in terms of involvement with the church. Um, he didn't go to church all that much more after that, um, which is kind of sad because here's a person whose hymns we sing in the church 200 years later, 240 years later, 230 years later. Um, but he himself, after he wrote these hymns, he barely ever stepped foot in the church again and it was because he was so depressed he was so um his soul was so pressed or so so crushed um but he he continued writing and this is actually um in 1785 he wrote a book he came out with a poem book called the task and this is something this is what brought him um fame around the all of britain um, Benjamin Franklin, he said uh, that he really enjoyed William Cooper's um, book. And then all across the nation, people were like, oh, this guy is a legit, uh, he's a legit poet. Um, this is back in the day when people actually like bought books and read poems for fun instead of watching TV and internet and stuff like that. So a whole lot of people were reading his poems and they said, this guy is an awesome poet. So he gained a lot of fame from that time. Um, but... That really didn't do all that much good for his for his um, mental health or his soul. And a year later, after the publication of this book that brought him so much fame, um, he fell into another period of depression and insanity. Um, and again, this is like I don't know. Like I, I'm guessing that he he just like he always did. He just sat at home and just stared out into the fields. I really don't know. Like. <laughs> There wasn't much productivity in his life besides these hymns. So if you guys have um, ever suffered from um, any level of depression, the worst thing you can do is to sit there and contemplate how miserable you are. Um, and he just became so inward focused. He, he became so um, concentrated on how terrible and miserable he was that it just sunk him deeper and deeper into despair. Um, but I, wish, I should also add that um, during this time, William John Newton continued his friendship. He did not, um, you know, like depressed people, people that they're just not always the funnest people to be around. But John Newton, he was a friend with him until the very end. He showed him friendship and kindness and compassion when no one else did, when no one else wanted to be around him. So um, in, from 1790 to 1796, 
um, he took care of Mary and when she was sick um, her children were probably gone somewhere they couldn't take care of her as much as they wanted to so he took care of this um, woman who, who was such a big figure in her in his life so he was still able to um, take care of other people uh, 1794 William Cooper he had a final bout with depression and insanity so we see in his life four major periods of depression and insanity it's not merely he felt bad but he went insane um, he did not think straight he could not remember these words that he wrote he did not remember the goodness of God uh, and this is so uh, this tells us so much about the reality of life doesn't it that we can be lovers of God we can believe the gospel we can go to church we can have Christian friends but at the same time, we can still experience crushing blows to our spirit. We can still experience major depression. We can still feel as if God has forgotten us. We can still have doubts. Um, and it, it does no good for us to sugarcoat these things and just when we have issues to say, you know what, it's, let's not talk about it or we don't need to uh, worry about it. The fact is that some of the greatest saints of the church have suffered from depression. Um, William Cooper is one of them. So um, finally, when he was in his eight, in 1800, when he was 69 years old, he died. And he died feeling this. I have this quote from him. I feel unutterable despair. Isn't that like terrible that you feel that way? on your deathbed we think that um, on our deathbed I hope that this is the case with me is that I'm going to be happy and I'm gonna be joyful that I'm gonna enter the presence of Jesus um, knowing that there's no condemnation knowing that God has accepted me that God loves me and that God is looking forward to seeing me face to face in his presence but William Cooper didn't feel that he felt on his deathbed complete despair. He felt that God had abandoned him. Um, that's kind of depressing. depressing. Um, so let me, let me uh, leave us with some hopes of notes. Um, let's turn to our, our final page, or the, the back. Does someone want to read this hymn? This is probably his most famous hymn. It says so much about how God works. Um, does anyone want to read God Moves in a Mysterious Way? God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The, flower, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. All right. This is a... Uh, um, we should sing this song in church sometime, I think. It's so good. <clears throat> Listen to what he says. Thanks, by the way, for reading. 
Um, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings upon your head. There was a cloud over William Cooper's head his entire life almost. And he feared that cloud. But he says here in the song that the, the clouds that we think are full of... Uh, that, that we dread so much, they're actually full of God's mercies. He, um, he continues on he, uh, on the, uh, the fourth verse. He says, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So I can imagine William Cooper on his deathbed, completely believing that God is against him, completely believing that there's a, God is frowning on the life of William Cooper. But when he dies, he enters the presence of God, and he sees God smiling. Like, can you like this is? I think this is what he's writing about. He's saying that behind a smiling, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So this is this is William Cooper's life summed up in one song: that God moves in a mysterious way. God moved in William Cooper's life, and he did it in a terrible, terrible manner. He did it in a way that brought glory to God, and also, um, ultimately, I, I'm sure that William Cooper, when he awoke uh, in the presence of God, he was like, "Oh my goodness, thank God that you are God, and that what I wrote was true." So um, we have little glimpses that that he actually had some hope. Maybe like in his doubts of de- in his in his bouts of depression and insanity, maybe there was a little bit of. During moments of lucidity, he thought, okay, maybe the things that I used to believe are still true. So um, we said that he took care of Mary Unwin um, until she died. And uh, he, um, and then after that, he lived with someone. Uh, I'm not sure if it was in the same house, but then um, uh, after William Cooper died, the people that, were, that, uh, that moved into the house next door, maybe they, they disassembled the house. They they um, took apart the shutters of the home of one of the windows of the home, and they found this written in pencil. This is I have this uh, in quotes. Farewell, dear scenes, forever closed to me. Oh, for what sorrows must I now exchange ye? There was there was um. He knew that there would be something beyond what he saw. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't that this was the end of the story. He, he knew that there was more to it. He knew that there'd be some type of exchange. And um, at his funeral, John Newton, he said uh, this of his friend. Oh, with what a surprise of joy would he find himself immediately before the throne and in the presence of the Lord. All his sorrows left below, and earth exchanged for heaven. So John Newton, he believed that his friend, the hell that he experienced on earth, would be no more, and he would exchange it for the glory of God. And um, in his eulogy to in his, in his eulogy of William Cooper, John Newton said this. He um, he took a passage from Exodus. Do you guys remember the scene where uh, where there's a burning bush? Um, and he, John Newton, likened. Cooper's life to the burning bush. He says his entire life was marked by fire. William Cooper was tormented by fire. And if you know, if you remember this about the burning bush, 
the burning bush was never consumed. And John Newton says, why was William Cooper never consumed? It was because God was there in the fire. So this was why William Cooper was never ultimately consumed. He was consumed with depression and doubt and insanity, but he was never ultimately consumed. And he was never ultimately consumed by the wrath of God because he was saved by by the blood of Jesus. So this is what William Cooper um, went through. Um, he's just such a weird, interesting life. I'm not sure if I would be able to function or achieve as much as he did if I suffered four bouts of depression and anxiety. Um, but any questions or comments before we finish off? Yes. Um, did one Cooper, like, like, how did he die? He, I think, um, I'm not sure, actually. I, sh- I, uh, I should have, it, it was nothing like, he didn't die in a car accident or anything. Well, there were cars. Yeah, no. I don't, I don't remember. I I yeah, probably natural causes. I think. I, I just wanted to say, like, I really, um, like the lesson or the, the the story, the biography, it was like strangely comforting, just um, so amazing. But I'm just so struck by John Newton's eulogy and um, how John Newton had such confidence that William Cooper um, was in the grace of God, even though himself he didn't think so. And I just think that's so much the importance of the church and Christian friends. So I mean, because William Cooper himself, I wish he took his own counsel. He says. Um, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, right? Or, mm-hmm. or what does he say? You know, God is His own interpreter, and so even in the hymn, he says, "Don't trust your own private feelings about the matter. Mm-hmm. You're sure to err and, and mistaken things, and therefore you need other Christians around you to help you to make these judgments." Yeah. And John Newton said, "William Cooper, you know, you're in Christ. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not damned to hell." Yeah. And uh, I also think it goes the other way around too which is that us as a private individual, we shouldn't say, oh, I'm saved without the church. We need the church to affirm us. And, mm-hmm. and I think this is maybe a big why William Cooper fell, fell into such deep depression because he absented himself from the church, right, as you yeah. said. Yeah, and actually, um, in, in his eulogy, John Newton said that uh, the last time he ever saw William Cooper was in 1773, the year of his fatal dream. So for the last 27 years of William Cooper's life, he... No, the la- that was the last time anyone saw him step foot in the church. Maybe he did once in a while, but for 27 years, can you imagine that? Um, until his death, he didn't go to church. He had no Christian community other than his friend John Newton. Um, what's cool is that John Newton didn't see him as a project of the church. John Newton saw him as a friend. He says, even if you don't go to church, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to be your friend. And this is what we need to do. Like We have friends that don't go to church anymore, right? Um, and my tendency is to sort of like, I don't need to go out of my way to like take care of him anymore but that's what John Newton did because he understood the generosity of the gospel right he understood that um, God never leaves us therefore we should never leave our friends either I'm wondering another question you can answer quickly is he felt he experienced that fatal dream and yet in 1779 so six years later the the hymns are published and you said he kept writing hymns yeah how was he able to write hymns about the Christian experience when he himself felt like he was disqualified or somehow excluded mm-hmm. from the Christian faith. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> it's it's maybe, maybe there were, like, moments where he just, it became true to him again. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was with the help of John Newton and, you know, like, six, uh, of those six years, I, uh, I'm sure that there were times when he felt that, you know, maybe it is true again. Maybe, mm-hmm. 
Um, maybe and, like music and hymn writing was the only moments when like grace broke into mm, his life. Yeah. But except for those moments, he just felt darkness. Yeah. I maybe guess the power of music. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I really, I mean, God moves in a mysterious way is a great hymn, but I really love a hymn filled with, I'm sorry, a fountain filled with blood. We mm -hmm. actually sing it on occasion, and it really is. I didn't know William Cooper wrote that. He did. It's a really beautiful hymn. Yeah, it is. So, crazy, crazy things come from messed up people. That's how God works. <laughs> um, and so let's finish off with the lessons from his life. Number one, the lives of the saints are hardly ever easy. So here's a passage in First Peter 4.12. Um, don't be surprised when you're suffering depression doubt pain and suffering can affect anyone um lesson number three god works through the most unlikely of people um and it, here i have a passage here in first corinthians where it says god uses who does god use the weak those that the world has thrown off god uses the really really messed up people um and finally taking a lesson from john newton people need healthy jesus loving people in their lives so um, if you guys know people in your lives, maybe God has you in their life for a reason. It's because uh, you have the gospel. You understand the grace of God, and perhaps you can show the grace of God to other people. Uh, final comments or questions before we close off? All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the life of William Cooper, and even though he was struck down and in despair, you still used him, and we trust that he is in your presence now, enjoying and loving the God that he wrote about. And I pray that we would um, be encouraged by his life, um, and that we would feel free to express our doubts and our concerns and our depression as well, God. So for these things, um, work in our lives, God, and uh, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.